This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air. Tēnā Saranai and welcome to the programme once more. As we all know, a few weeks ago the World Cup came to an end in South Africa with the Spanish team walking away with their heads in the air, or more probably in the clouds. We're led to believe by the media that the New Zealand team was fated all around the world for its gutsy performances and great disappointment was felt in England for the miserable display by their team. All around the world, so much store is put into something like the World Cup that in some places people are even killed if they do not perform up, up to expectation. Remember Andres Escobar in the 1994 World Cup and even this year Paraguay's Salvador Cabanas was shot in the head. Now I'm not saying that incident was necessarily connected to the team showing in South Africa. For that level of world interest, though, soccer players spend enormous amounts of time and energy preparing themselves. In fact, for many of them, soccer is their life, a constant and rigorous schedule of practice, keeping fit, promotions and all the rest of it. Yet I can't help but wonder where it all goes. For a brief moment, the Spanish team were the darlings of the world, and when they got back to their home country, they were heroes. But in a couple of years... Not even that, just a few months down the track, how many people will really remember? How many will be even vaguely interested? When the next World Cup dawns, this one will be old news and mostly dead, only good for journalists and soccer-head historians to hark back at. So much energy and enthusiasm for such short-term results. As Shakespeare said in King Henry VI, Glory is like a circle in the water, which never ceaseth to enlarge itself, till by broad spreading it disperse to naught. Now you might wonder what this has got to do with the Buddha's teachings and this radio program, but actually it's quite, got quite a lot to do with what Buddha said. If we look at our daily lives, how much are they filled with chasing something as ephemeral, as unattain- unattainable as glory, fame, reputation, recognition, whatever you want to call it. We hate it when we're criticized, even just a little bit, but when we're praised, perhaps like the Spanish team or the New Zealanders, it's like nectar from the gods. So we spend countless hours trying to become the one everyone likes and fighting those who don't see us like that. We fight so hard for adulation, but the point is that it's all pointless. People's appreciation change in an instant, and their memories are just the same. You know the New Zealand soccer team just has to lose a few games and Ricky Herbert will fade into the woodwork. The Buddha said that all the things we chase with a worldly aim are useless, even winning the World Cup, because it just doesn't bring us long-term happiness. In fact, if we spend all our energy on worldly stuff, it will just bring us unhappiness piled up on unhappiness. Today the Spanish team is over the moon because it won. Next time, when it loses in the first couple of rounds, people will be contemplating suicide. Instead, it would be much better if we channel our energies into getting something worthwhile from this life, something that will last us for a very long time. We certainly can't take our memories of the World Cup with us when we die. However, if we've become such ardent fans that soccer automatically arises in our minds at death time, we may be so overwhelmed at having to leave it behind, death may be a very miserable experience. 
This is all a bit of a roundabout way to get to the topic we're really starting on in the program today. We've been talking over the last few weeks about the actions of a bodhisattva, the person who wants to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Of course, those following the program will know by now that those actions are basically the six perfections of generosity, morality, patience, enthusiasm, concentration and wisdom. We've gone through the first three, generosity, morality and patience, and today we're starting to look at the perfection of enthusiasm. And that, of course, is why I started the program off with the World Cup. In Buddhist terms, enthusiasm, sometimes translated as joyous effort, is not the sort of enthusiasm we have to play in the World Cup, though it is the enthusiasm to concentrate on Dharma practice in the same way that David Beckham or Maradona concentrate on kicking balls around. The difference, of course, is not in the enthusiasm, but in the aim and the result. If we practice Dharma with powerful enthusiasm, it will help us immeasurably in future lives on our path to enlightenment, while if we practice soccer with the same enthusiasm, we might be reincarnated as a soccer ball. No, I'm joking, of course. But the best you could hope for is to be a soccer fan again in your next human life, and that's not much of an aim or a result. So Buddhist joyous effort is defined as the mind that takes delight in the objects of virtue. And here, virtue basically means practicing the Dharma and helping others continuously. The perfection of joyous effort is when enthusiasm is motivated by bodhicitta, the mind that wants to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings everywhere. If we want to achieve anything, we have to be enthusiastic. That is obvious. And the more enthusiastic we are, the greater the likelihood of succeeding. This is not only true for Buddhist practice, but for whatever we want to accomplish in the world as well. Bill Gates didn't get to where he is in the world today by playing with Microsoft only on the weekends. Generally, we can say that Dharma practice is not as easy as accomplishing worldly activities. I mean, how easy is it to really counteract anger, attachment and so on? I think it's much easier to create a suite of computer programs like Microsoft Office than to totally rid oneself of irritation. So we need a great deal of enthusiasm if we're going to practice the Dharma. Often we will get to points where nothing seems to be working and our minds appear just as rigid and, as, and unyielding as ever before. Then we could wonder why we bother and think of just giving it all up. We can't really let that happen. As one Lama said, better not to start, but once started, better to finish. And that's why we need lots of push to keep our practice going. People who are brought up in a religion often think it's enough to trot off to the temple or church now and again and to do special ceremonies on particular days. For instance, some people only go to the temple on anniversary days of their relatives' deaths and dana days, and when asked if they meditate, say it's too difficult. One master said that behaving like that is like putting enormous amount of effort into making a stunning and delicious Christmas dinner, but eating fish and chips for the rest of the year. If we want to make real progress in Buddhism, we have to maintain a steady practice, even if it's a small practice. It's no good saying, ah, oh, it's too difficult for me with a sigh. The main point of practice is to do it regularly, and of course we have to start small. We can't be like that rich Tibetan merchant I spoke about some programs back, who was so inspired by the great exploits of the Buddhist master Milarepa 
that he gave all his possessions away and went into the mountains to meditate. Three weeks later he was back, loudly complaining that all Milarepa had done for him was make him poor. We have to start from where we are, not try to start from where the Buddha ended up. Usually where we are is somewhere at the back of the beginners, so a small regular practice will best suit us well. My teacher used a good analogy. He said, imagine that you're out in the wild and come across a huge mountain made of gold, at the foot of which is a nugget. You can jump up and down and scream as much as you like, he said, but there's nothing you can do with a mountain. You certainly can't take it away with you. It's better to put the nugget in your pocket and use that to buy the tools to mine the big mountain. The Dharma is the same. We can't do the profound practices now. When we can't even keep our mind on one object for two minutes, how can we think we're going to get real realizations? First practice small things, slowly building up our power until we have the capacity to do the difficult practices. What I'm trying to say here is that everyone can practice if they give themselves the opportunity and develop some enthusiasm for it. Even the most scatterbrained harebrain can learn to meditate by just focusing solely on practice for a few minutes regularly every day and slowly, slowly building up. We don't have to be Buddha by next week. In fact, we can't. But we can have a more balanced outlook and calmer mind by the time we die if we just practice well regularly. As I've said before, Westerners are very good at diving headlong into things, being all overcome with enthusiasm for a while, and then losing interest. And this might be okay if you're trying to toss the caber or break bricks with your head, but it's not going to bring results in Dharma practice. Do you remember the story I told about the, the new Buddhist at Bodhgaya who heard about the hell realms and decided that he had to do at least 1,000 prostrations a day to purify his negative karma? After about a week, I met him at the stupa and asked how he was going. Terrible, he said. My mind is so uptight. These prostrations are so difficult. I'm beginning to hate doing them. Now, most people would find doing 100 prostrations a day a bit of a trial, so diving into 1,000 a day really puts you under strain. This is not how to practice the Dharma. It is how to very quickly make Dharma practice unbearable. It would have been much better for him to start with 50 prostrations a day and keep his mind happy and contented. Then he could slowly build up the practice until he was totally used to it. I remember another person, a Mongolian monk, who was doing a retreat in Dharamsala in India, which is where His Holiness stays. He was also doing prostrations, but he started off with just a few every day. Slowly he built his way up, until when I spoke to him, he was comfortably doing 1,000 a day. He told me that at first it had been hard, because his body had not been used to doing the prostrations. But he just paced himself, and in due course, all was going well. So that's an example of how we should approach our practice. We should do as much as we comfortably can and take rest when we need it. But as I said before, the regularity is the most important. We need the enthusiasm to just plug away at it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, life after life. And to do that, we need a joyous effort that is not dampened by difficulties on the path, 
but is backed by a strong determination to gain our goal. You know, if people can do so much incredible training for such small goals as the World Cup, why can't we exert ourselves for something that is going to eliminate our suffering forever? The guy trying to do the 1,000 prostrations a day might have wanted to stop because of his aching body and mind, but the main obstacle to developing joyous effort is not overzealousness, but its opposite, laziness. This is a mental factor that either doesn't want to engage in virtuous practice at all or doesn't have a very strong desire to. It causes any enthusiasm we may have had to weaken and stops us from creating virtuous actions. It also makes the virtue we have already created to wither. If we give in to laziness, it will be very difficult to gain realizations at all. Actually, even in a worldly activity, if we are lazy, we won't go anywhere. In India, generally the Tibetans are a hard-working people, and some have had, many, had made very good lives for themselves. But in the country, Indians who are not as industrious have become jealous and deride the Tibetans and even attack them. That, of course, just makes everybody unhappy. It certainly doesn't make the Indians any more the well-off. So laziness is just an obstruction in whatever we want to do. The Tibetans describe three types of laziness. The laziness of procrastination, the laziness of attachment to worldly activities, and the laziness of feeling inadequate. The first one, the laziness of procrastination, is what most of us do in our approach to Dharma practice. We want to practice and think that practice is a good thing, but right now we have too much on our plate to practice. We have a stressful job, or we want to put the kids through school first, or we want to amass a great amount of money, and then we'll give everything up and practice the Dharma. It's a bit like the Tibetan merchant in reverse. Sometimes I tease people and say, why don't you become a monk? Oh no, they say, my mind is too unsettled, I couldn't do that. Maybe in my next life. Or, I can't, I don't know enough about the Dharma. First let me learn more. These are the excuses we use to stop ourselves from seriously practicing the Dharma. Of course, saying I will do it in my next life, or saying that I will first have to learn more, just means that you are most unlikely to ever get down to it. Practicing the Dharma doesn't mean you have to be an intellectual giant or a fount of great knowledge. Lots of terribly ignorant people have become monks and flourished. Remember the story of the old man who wanted to become a monk, but the Buddha's most famous disciples told him that he had no virtue to do so. Venerable Moggallana was one of the Buddha's, Buddha's closest disciples and was well known for his supernatural powers. Even when he looked into the old man's past lives, he couldn't see any root of virtue for him to become a monk. The old man was terribly disappointed, and when the Buddha saw him, asked what was wrong. The old man told him, and when the Buddha checked with his great powers, he saw that in a life long gone, the old man had been a fly that had alighted on a piece of dung during a rainstorm. The dung had started floating on the rainwater and had gone around a stupa. That circumambulation as a fly, said the Buddha, was enough virtue to make him a monk, and so he was ordained. Now, if such unintended virtue can lead to someone becoming a monk and practicing the Dharma, how can we say we don't have enough knowledge or our mind is too unsettled? This is, as the text says, just laziness. 
Perhaps a monk's life may not be for everyone, but nothing is stopping us from practicing. To stop such procrastinations, we can remember impermanence, and particularly that we have no idea when we will die. If the doctor said you have only a couple of days to live, what would you do? In such a situation, we would probably not waste our time with meaningless activities, but quickly prepare for the end of life. But we don't need a doctor to tell us we only have a short time to live. We just have to concentrate for a moment on our breath. It only takes the breath to stop, and life is over. It is so fragile, isn't it? Just take a few seconds to concentrate on your breath. That simple in-and-out process just has to stop and you'll be dead with no more time to even think of practicing the Dharma. You might think it cannot happen so easily, but a previous flatmate and friend of mine, only about 30 years old, went to sleep one afternoon two years ago and when his wife came home, he'd stopped breathing. Another man, about 60 years old, I worked for before I became a monk, didn't turn up for, for work one day. When someone went to his home, they found him dead in bed. During the night, he'd just stopped breathing. That is how close we are to death. And it's not only the stopping of the breath that will stop our life. We all know many other causes for death just hanging around, waiting to do their dirty work. Diseases like cancer, car accidents, muggers, even those things that are supposed to protect us, like our food or our homes, can be the cause for death. For instance, we only need to eat some poisoned food and we could be done for. I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of the year, one of the most exclusive restaurants in the world, Chef Heston Blumenthal's Fat Duck in Bray, England, was closed for a couple of weeks after some 40 people fell very ill from eating there. Nobody found the cause of the illness, as this restaurant is rigorously monitored for food contamination. But that's how easy it is to catch something you don't want at even the best easy eating places. And most of us eat out at places much more lax than that. Also, thinking about that house that we think is so safe. Just let the earth give itself a good shake and our haven could come tumbling down around our ears and kill us. In April this year, how many people in Xinghai province in China thought they would die in an earthquake? 600 people did, and I bet not one of them was expecting the building they were in to fall on top of them. But we are constantly in the same situation. I could go on about the various causes of death around us, but I'm sure you can think of them all yourself. Remembering how fragile our life is, and that we could be dead this time tomorrow, may give us the impetus we need to practice the Dharma, and not just waste this fine opportunity we now have. Compare yourself to your pet, whatever it is. You might think you wouldn't mind swapping places. All our center cat has to do, for instance, is sleep, eat and go to the toilet, and the rest of the day and the night is playtime. But animals can't do anything to create the causes for good rebirths, never mind liberation and enlightenment, whereas we have all the right conditions and endowments to be able to practice intelligently right now. We don't have to wait until the kids are grown up or we have a fortune in a bank. Even in our everyday life, we can think about the Dharma and practice to be more kind, more tolerant and more loving.
Even when we feel irritated with someone else, we can practice patience and not let our emotions rule our life. Geshe Loden in his book The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism says, Whatever your present circumstances, they are perfect for you to apply the Dharma in most, the most effective way according to your specific karma. You are in a unique individual. Your circumstances are unique and you can uniquely apply the Dharma to transform your life according to those particular conditions. The prisoner in solitary confinement has a great opportunity to meditate. The harried businessman has the perfect opportunity to develop patience and the nurse may focus on compassion. Each, he says, should practice according to their circumstances. In a more formal way, we can set up a regular practice session in the morning, meditating according to our tradition and circumstances. We keep the session time not too long or too short, but according to our circumstances. And then during the day, we can try to keep the meditation session in mind, let its effect stay with us to influence our activities. For instance, we have just spoken about impermanence and the closeness of death. This is a good subject to meditate on in the morning, and then as the day goes by, remember it and think how death is so close, just the stoppage of a breath away. It will really stop us from wasting our time, but we will want to do those things that make our life really meaningful. Then if people criticize us, we may not want to sma snap back. It may seem, seem unimportant. If I'm going to die soon, why bother about someone abusing me? I have more important things to think about than getting upset with somebody else's words. It may give us a completely new perspective on the situation so that it's easier for us to be patient and calm. When we come across some creature who is suffering, we can practice compassion and renunciation. And we can, if we're really clever, continually use a bodhicitta motivation in whatever we do so that everything becomes the practice of Dharma. When the afflictive emotions arise, we can remember and apply the antidotes in this way instead of the objects of anger, attachment and jealousy being hindrances to our practice. They become helpers to increase our renunciation, compassion and wisdom. Geshe Loden says, With joyous effort, and the knowledge of how to practice Dharma in your daily life, you are able to continue to enjoy the pleasures of cyclic existence without creating negative karma or being controlled by delusion. By the joyous effort that delights in non-attachment, you will experience pure enjoyment from the objects of the senses and at the same time strengthen and increase your realizations. With joyous effort and mindfulness, you can also find the perfect way to practice Dharma according to the needs of your situation now. So there's no need to wait. Procrastinating merely delays your achievement of happiness and good conditions. Okay, so now as this program draws to a close, let's do a little meditation. Please sit comfortably. First of all, bring to mind how we can come face to face with death at any moment from any number of causes. Think of people in your experience who have unexpectedly died. Is it my turn next?
think of the ways that your mind tries to avoid practicing the Dharma, especially putting it off with very ex various excuses. Try to penetrate how deceptive this is, and by allowing such excuses you will never actually get down to real practice and your life will just be wasted. setting up a meditation practice in the morning, being more kind with people at work, developing patience with those who irritate you, being more tolerant of others with idiosyncrasies. Use your own situation to see how you can practice and then determine that is what you're going to do from now on. I hope your to our talk today has been helpful, but now time is up. Thank you for joining us today, and please do so again next week at the same time. Please dedicate any positive potential we've created to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.